G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again on this follow-up topic. Absolutely. It is always good to do a bit of a deeper dive into a topic like we're going to be doing today, and we've called today's episode Encouraging Emotional Intelligence in Children. So, I suppose we spoke a bit about emotional intelligence last week, Dad, but what are we going to be talking about specifically today? Well, last week we talked about how I attended a conference where one of the main speakers was Daniel Goleman, who wrote a book, Emotional Intelligence, in 1995, and he's followed up with different research in that kind of area, and he was highlighting a whole range of ways in which emotional intelligence can benefit us. So it benefits our mental health and relationships and at work and home and leadership skills. But one of the things that I thought was terrific that he did is he highlighted how you can actually teach some of these skills or encourage some of these emotional intelligence-related skills in children. And we're going to talk about some of those strategies that he discussed. And I must admit, Dad, it's been interesting having a bit of a look into this topic. For me this week, as someone who obviously isn't a child anymore and I'm not a parent, Dad, I don't have kids myself. So initially when I first thought about it, I thought, oh, you know, what's necessarily the relevance to me? But I actually think when we look into emotional intelligence in children, even as someone who's an adult, like obviously it has its relevance for parents and for those who are around children, but... Even for someone like myself, I think looking at it in these simplified terms that we'll be speaking about today does help to get your head around it a bit better, Dad. Yes, and I think if we consider each of those four main components of emotional intelligence and what might help children, that will help. So those four components of, say, self-awareness, then there's emotional regulation, then there's empathy with others, and then there's like social skills or managing relationships with others. And so if we consider some of the things that, say, parents can do with children or that children can pick up themselves, that actually reinforces our understanding of each of those components. Well, let's maybe have a bit of a deep dive into each of them. We spoke about them last week in terms of maybe for adults or a little bit more in generally, but we will speak about them more for, for children today, these components. So if we start with self-awareness, Dad, how can we encourage children to be a bit more self-aware? Because it's not necessarily something that comes naturally to children. Well, I think one of the things is for parents, for example, to help children acknowledge and even name their emotions. And one of the main things with that is to give room for children to be able to acknowledge and express their emotions in some ways. And when we think of emotions and naming emotions, it helps to be aware of, for example, four key emotions. It's being glad, sad, mad or angry and scared. They're four core emotions and maybe one other one is disgust. But all the other emotions are in some way related to those core four or five emotions. And so part of it is even if a parent recognises something about how their child is feeling, to be able to even reflect some of that back or even noticing if a child feels tired or upset in some ways or noticing if a child is happy about something and reflecting that back just as a parent recognizing those emotions in your children and also helping children name them can make a difference and I think another thing that can help with that is reading books because the characters in books are going to be acknowledging and expressing their emotions in a certain way and so I think that reading books is a wonderful way 
of helping children not just tap into the reactions of others, but certainly tapping into the reactions of themselves as well. Well, definitely. And as you say, reading books, like it seems all stories have that component of of being able to, I suppose, recognise maybe some of ourselves in each of the stories, but also recognising that there's an individual nature to life as well and that there's going to be plenty of people who go through situations that are slightly different to what we do too. So that seems like a great one. But I also want to pick up on what you said about using names, Dad, because I'd actually be interested to get your thoughts on this because we haven't really had a discussion about this much even off air. But like, it's one thing that I hear as you know, someone who's not a parent, not necessarily psychologically trained, The language that particularly even young people use around like psychological terms, like quite often we can hear kids use quite clinical psychological terms, like even, you know, depressed and anxious. Like I wonder what your thoughts are there in terms of maybe talking about emotions with children, but maybe like in their own context. Like it seems to me that that can be potentially a little bit of a trap when falling into talking about emotions that we can make it a little bit more sophisticated than it needs to be. And and it can maybe be a little bit more complicated than it needs to be for children as well. Yes, I think sticking to some of the basic kind of terms can help. And one thing I remember a psychologist colleague described to me when she was talking with children and looking to encourage them to recognise where they were feeling what we might recognise as anxiety, but children can use a different term and would tend to say to a child client, do you have any worries? So that's a nice gentle way of bringing up something in natural language about anxiety or rather than certainly referring to something like depression. Yes, that's more a clinical term, but just maybe acknowledging to a child, oh, you look sad. You're sad about something. Or if a child seemed angry, you could perhaps ask, oh, you seem cross. Is there something that's bothering you? Or something along those lines. So a lot of it is about permission giving, but also using natural language, I think, can help simpler natural language. Well, certainly, and from what you described there, Dad, it just made me think back to the old days of Winnie the Pooh because from memory, Winnie the Pooh is a a brilliant example of exploring emotions. You know, you can talk about sort of sadness and melancholy in terms of Eeyore and, you know, excitement and zest in terms of Tigger and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I remember that one as a great example from back in the day. Yes, I think Eeyore had a particularly important role in Winnie the Pooh, being able to acknowledge uncomfortable or painful emotions and still to be accepted and loved. That's an important message. Certainly. Well, Dad, now we go on to the next component of emotional intelligence, uh, which is self-regulation. How can we go at self-regulation in children? Yes, well, it comes back to some simple ways of introducing ideas like self-talk or relaxation. And again, I like some of the examples that Daniel Goleman used. One is in terms of this relationship between our frontal lobes, our prefrontal cortex, which directly helps us plan and regulate our behaviour, say compared to the limbic system, the fight-flight kind of reactions. I like the illustration that even children can look at this relationship between the frontal lobes and the limbic system in terms of having a conversation between their wise owl part and their guard dog. The wise owl that can step back and think of what might help in a situation or how you might react more helpfully in that situation compared to the guard dog, which gets across the notion that our fight-flight reactions are protective, but sometimes they can get a bit out of hand, whether it be out of anger or fear, overreacting. So recognise that we can say something to ourselves to calm down by having the wise owl part say something like, 
it's okay, or take your time, or I'll just focus on this, or I'll just do this. These are simple examples of coping self-talk. Well, I think that's a great thought exercise to put what is quite a complicated idea in terms of the limbic system in our prefrontal cortex and the interplay between putting that in a nice, neat context for children. But I suppose if we extend that and now look at some other exercises that we could put in the context of children, I know there's one with a a fluffy toy dad, which I think is a nice, neat exercise to help with relaxation, which is to do, of course, with self-regulation. So could you just give us a bit of a brief rundown on what that exercise is and how it could help in this situation? Yes, so this relates to the adult exercise, which is simple enough as well, which is, say, spending 10 minutes in the morning breathing in to a count of three, breathing out to a count of three, that is we described last week. If people do that for 10 minutes, they're likely to follow through well, perform an important task better late in the day because they'll be less distractible. Well, that's remarkable how simple breathing techniques can help that way. How can we induce them in children or give children a guide how to do that one way is that a child can lie down and put a fluffy toy on his or her belly and look at how the fluffy toy rises when you breathe in and falls when you breathe out that's actually a very helpful kind of cognitive control and just as with adults that kind of breathing exercise is going to help children be less distractible in some ways, but it basically teaches some of that breathing and cognitive control that goes with the relaxation. Oh, it seems like a nice, neat little exercise there, Dad, that would help. And in terms of other nice, neat little exercises, I know there's one with a stoplight exercise that would be good to go over here. What's that exercise? Okay, it's a variation on their many different programs in the past, including for children with ADHD, which are looking to help get more attentional control, sometimes called stop-think-do programs, the idea of looking for someone to pause before they act. But this one's simply a traffic light, a stoplight kind of exercise. The idea is if you're upset, see a stoplight. Immediately see the red light and pause. Just slow down. The stoplight says stop, calm down, think before we act. Then the orange light, next you go to the orange light, that's think of some alternatives. What's something I can do here? And then afterwards, the green light is picking on the best suggestion that comes to mind. You might think of two or three or four different things you can do. Pick one of them and then do that. So it seems to me that that almost builds upon this idea of like building in a break. Like I remember there was a TV show, I can't actually remember what it was called. I think it was called Super Nanny back in the day. And and she had this thing that, you know, it came up regularly. It was almost a bit of a meme, but it was, you know, it was always, you know, you send the naughty kids to the naughty step. And I was, you know, they're not allowed to go to their bedroom because that's where all their toys are. But if they go to the naughty step where it's, you know, they can look at a wall and think about what they've done. But it seems to be building upon this idea of almost like the stoplight idea of if you can build in that pause, particularly with children, like it seems to me that that relates to adults very much as well. But with children, if we can build in that pause, almost take distance from the situation, there's maybe just going to be a little bit of maybe natural emotional variation with children that maybe through taking them away from what's an intense situation, 
just through virtue of, you know, the ups and downs of being a child, maybe after a little while, they might not necessarily feel the situation so intensely. So is that part of what that stoplight exercise almost builds upon the principle of? Yes, it's building in that pause. And so what you're saying there, that relates to the whole process of time out as a strategy for parents to help their children get more emotional regulation. So, for example, if a child has thrown toys around or not done something that the parents asked them to do despite repetition or they've been very mean to their sibling or crossed some kind of line, broken a rule in some kind of obvious way, there are a couple of things with time out. One is it does help teach that self-regulation because it's a built-in pause. But it also gives the child some time in their room, not just to settle down, but also to reflect a little bit on what just happened while they were sent to the room in the first place. So that's some level of self-awareness, hopefully it can help, and being aware also of other people to some extent, like what lines they've crossed and how that might affect other people. But yes, it does build in that pause that hopefully helps children get back to a more regulated state. And how about empathy, Dad? Like, this is, you know, tricky one with adults at the best of times. But how can we encourage more empathy in children? Well, I think one of the main things is parents showing empathy, that empathic concern towards their children. And by parents being attuned to their children's needs, that actually models that for other people. But I think also... Again, books, movies, and discussing situations, discussing situations where you observe people interacting in a certain way and someone might feel upset or someone might feel uplifted or happy because of something that another person has done. So I think talking about those kind of situations in your family setting, talking about the plot of a movie, talking about how people are reacting in a particular situation, and using the names of emotions whilst you're talking about that, that helps model empathy. Basically also, children being raised in homes where there's kindness and compassion, that's modelling empathy the whole time. And like I remember back to when I was a kid, Dad, and it was such a notion that, you know, for very good reason was impressed to us with great importance, but it's that idea of, you know, treat others as we'd like to be treated. Like that notion seems to be so helpful for kids in that way too. But it's really interesting, I suppose, even to draw back on what we were talking about before with like books and stuff, like one thing that really struck me with empathy, and maybe it's something that's happened a little bit more in recent times, but like I think of two people for me who've been brilliant for society in terms of maybe extending a collective empathy, for lack of a better term, but to me that's, for example, Adam Goods and Eddie Betts, two people who've experienced racism in football and What Adam Goods and Eddie Betts have done in response to that is to write children's books. And to me, like, what a powerful tool to be able to channel that negative experience into something so positive as, like, writing a kid's book. Like, inherently, you can't write a negative kid's book. It just wouldn't do as a kid's book in many ways. So, like, I think that's maybe a a feature of society these days. Like, it seems to me there's a lot more maybe voices out there, perspectives out there. And maybe the more that we can expose children to different perspectives and and maybe how certain situations make different people feel, and I'm maybe thinking particularly of stuff like, you know, racism, sexism, stuff like this. Like, it seems to me that if we can teach kids about that, you know, in a storybook form, like, that's going to be a really good setup for later life. Absolutely. I think that's one way that our society is greatly improving being more ready to call out prejudice, 
in a various range of ways, and you've given a couple of wonderful models of people who are prepared to call out prejudice in a certain kind of way and to encourage people to be more open and empathic. And, Dad, the fourth and final component of emotional intelligence is managing relationships. So how does this relate to children? Okay, well, as with adults, this is partly about acting with kindness and compassion, but also about ways of dealing with conflict. And so that comes back to social problem solving. And I like Daniel Goldman's examples of how you can introduce this notion and help children consider this notion even from about five or six years old. So an example with a younger child might be, if you think someone stole one of your crayons, what could you do that would help and what would hurt? So it gets back to this idea of what would help, what would hurt. Just going up to the child and yelling at them or grabbing something of theirs, yeah, well, most young children are going to get the idea that that won't help too much. But the child might think of an example like saying to the other child, I think you have one of my crayons, can I have that back? Or maybe even asking the teacher to see if the other student might have one of your crayons. So just thinking of something that might be more pro-social. Whereas if a child is older, for example in middle school, an example might be, hey, if you had stage fright, so that emotional hijack we talked about last week, if you had stage fright, what would help what would hurt? And you ask the child to reflect on the different ways that they could react. Again, that's going to involve some kind of interplay of their frontal lobes and their limbic system. But if they're older again, say teenage years, the example might be, say if someone's pressuring you to take drugs, but you don't want to, what would help? What would hurt? So that basic strategy, if you like, stepping back from a challenging situation and reflecting on what you might do, coming up with a few different alternatives and considering how they might work out. And so it seems to me that, that part of that exercise is, is like encouraging agency in children in some ways. In terms of where we're trying to say to people, look, you might be in a situation where you're feeling like you're confronted with your emotions, but actually if you take a step back from that, then you've got a whole lot more options in terms of what you do. Yes, I think very much so. I think that's a very important point, that agency. And as people recognise that it's okay to have a full range of feelings, that's normal. Even feelings like frustration or anger or feeling upset, that's all a normal part of life. But also stopping and reflecting, how might I deal with this? And also considering respect for other people. And in terms of that respect for other people, this is part of also families and parents having rules. But what helps is if children understand the purpose of those kind of rules. So then children have a lot of freedom to choose different ways that they act, but again, it's acting out of respect with other people. Well, just before we finish up, Dad, I know you wanted to say something about the character strengths, which is relevant here. So, like, how do the character strengths relate to emotional intelligence in children? Well, I think one of the main things is parents recognising the character strengths in their children. For example, recognising if your child has a particularly strong sense of humour or they're very honest or they have a lot of zest or often act with kindness, noticing these positive character traits and reflecting them back to your children because that helps your child's self-awareness and owning some of the best in themselves. But also mentioning there is a character strengths questionnaire for youth. And so we might have a link for that 
on our webpage for this episode because it's good to be aware that there are ways that your children can also access a particular exercise. It might take about, say, 15 minutes or so. I think particularly when children are about, say, 12 years old or a little bit older, that can be a really worthwhile exercise to do. Absolutely. I, I think maybe we're a, a little older than 12 when we first did that one, Dad. But uh, yeah, can certainly recommend that's a good one for kids. Even just to help out with that self-awareness idea of giving them a good sense of their strengths because that can be, that can be a tough thing in the playground, Dad, when you know, it's, everyone's uh, on, on top of each other. You know, there's, it's all elbows and shoulders trying to uh, fight for the hierarchy of the playground. So uh, I think that can be a good thing just to remind kids of what their individual strengths are. But Thanks for chatting with me so much about all this today, Dad, and last week as well. It's been good to to get into this topic of emotional intelligence. As we said at the start of last week's episode, it's not so much one that we hear about explicitly spoken about a whole lot, but I think indirectly it's relevant in so many ways, and it is good to chat about it in the context of children because uh, it is a little bit simpler when we talk about things with children and certainly helped me to get my head around it when we spoke about it in those terms. So, Thanks very much, Dad, and I look forward to the next one. Good then, Rowan. I'll just say one final thing. It reminds me of a mantra by Christopher Peterson, one of the doins of positive psychology. And I think this comes through this theme of emotional intelligence. He had a mantra, and it was that other people matter. And that's what a whole lot of emotional intelligence is, being attuned to ourselves, being attuned to others.